Okay, well, hello everyone. Thanks so much for joining us here at uh, episode two here in the PLS 150 podcast. This week, trying to build some foundations, and we're going to be doing that through the window of the classic works of Thomas Hobbes and John Locke. And um, we're going to spend some time in class next week kind of going through some of the details and specifics of their arguments and trying to see how they, in some ways, built a vision of the world and then tried to root an understanding of politics around that. And we're going to see that both of them share a common device um, known as trying to imagine human beings in a state of nature, right? And in some ways, this picks up nicely with what we discussed last week, building around the quotation from Aristotle and his discussion of human beings as political animals. And um, in this way, uh, we can say that in some ways, Hobbes and Locke's use, and particularly starting with Hobbes, and Locke is going to pick this up and take it in a different direction, um, their discussion and utilization of the state of nature is in some ways trying to get at this same question of what is the bare essence, right, going back to that term essence, right, of human beings and trying to understand that through imagining what human beings would be like in the absence of any government or any sort of formal system of state or government control, right, and then using that to establish a set of building blocks that they are then going to construct their political theory and most more importantly, their theory of the state and notions of justice and so forth within the state around that. What is the bare essence of human beings in the absence of basically all society, right? With no rules, no laws, no courts, no police, um, and so forth. How would human beings behave in that situation? And imagining that, so this is a thought exercise, right? And the extent to which they thought they were really discussing a real moment in human history um, and in some ways, that's an interesting debate in itself. I mean, if we take the approach we did last week in looking at human beings as essentially political and kind of Aristotle's view of things, it might be almost impossible to imagine human beings living outside of the state. Um, another thinker who will certainly be coming up um, throughout the course, uh, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, also would join this conversation in terms of trying to imagine human beings in a state of nature and then building a political theory around what they claim to be or argue is the kind of core essence or aspects of, of human nature and, and human activity uh, from that. Now, Rousseau is interesting in that he believes he's going to identify actually how human beings lived prior to entering into what Rousseau would call civil society and very much a world that is bound by a lot of the trappings that define life today, right? And Rousseau is going to have a very interesting take on um, what civil society does to us and, and uh, how it not only grows out of human nature, but also transforms uh, human life and human existence. And in for Rousseau's view, often in very negative ways, right? But more Rousseau later. Let's um, stick with Hobbes and Locke for now. And what's going to be really important when we think about Hobbes and Locke, right, is to think about how they, I, I want to discuss them, we're going to talk about them in, in their own right, in their own theories, and in the ways that that kind of has shaped and informed our understanding of politics now for centuries, uh, but also looking at them as kind of, again, archetypes or representations of two very distinct understandings of politics and what politics is meant to do, what, what role does it play? Um, and 
in Hobbes, we are going to find a continuation of a strand of thought that traces back quite a long time, and we might call it kind of conservative or realist, or there's a lot of different names for it, but basically an idea that human beings are untrustworthy, somewhat unsavory, prone to be very selfish and self-regarding. In that view, politics, and particularly organized politics or the state, is going to be a mechanism for constraining kind of these human passions, right? For Hobbes, human beings were not rational, right? We were not rational and very calculating actors. I mean, in some ways we had that aspect, but for Hobbes, the primary driver of human behavior is passions and often passions that we wouldn't think as very um, appealing, perhaps, especially uh, the drive for glory, for vanity, for self-regard, right? And for Hobbes, the state and government and rules and laws are all mechanisms for controlling, constraining, and as we're going to talk about sometime down the road, potentially redirecting those passions, right, to create a functioning, orderly society. And that's another key kind of theme in this broad paradigm of political thought and and understanding the political world, right, is order. For, for thinkers like Hobbes and those like him, they're going to argue that ultimately politics is a process of delivering order and regularity to the human experience that would not come about without some sort of external force, right? And, and we'll talk again more about kind of some of the specifics of Hobbes' argument. And by contrast, we're going to be looking at the work of John Locke, who wrote over 100 years after Hobbes wrote his famous political theory work, um, The Leviathan, which is still widely read and debated um, to this day as is Locke's work. And Locke is going to, in some ways, be responding to Hobbes' theory uh, and arguing that fundamentally human, human beings are social beings, are amenable to working together, to cooperating, to understanding the interest of others, to trying to um, work in a kind of social system and to generally have a good or overall well-meaning nature. That now, now Locke is not arguing that human beings are perfect or aren't prone to commit crimes or do bad things, but he's, I think, you know, going with this, like most of the time, most people can be expected to be operating from some place of good faith and in trying to, and, and again, naturally amenable to following certain rules. Um, for, for Locke, we're going to see, he really uh, emphasizes this notion of property, right? That we have some instinctual or baseline understanding of there's things that are mine and things that are yours, and that we can use our rationality and reason um, outside of law, outside of government, outside of fear to come across this idea that like, hey, the world will be a much easier place to live in if we say like, oh, that's your stuff and that's my stuff. And I'll agree not to take your stuff if you agree not to take my stuff. That for Locke, those kinds of understandings, and this is kind of one of the key distinctions as well, can and, and would emerge in the, even in the absence of a state. And that for Locke, the state and the government is going to be a way of solving certain inconveniences and in some ways taking this raw material of human beings' generally good nature and improving it and making things even better, right? So that's a kind of big fork in the road. I mean, in some ways, I, I often describe Hobbes's view as somewhat arguing that human beings, like the state and government, is a kind of zoo that we need to create in order to constrain and control ourselves, right? That we, uh, I don't want to get too 
kind of philosophical, but in some ways we build the cage to to contain ourselves and that left to our own devices, we are going to act in very selfish and self-regarding ways and in some ways feel constantly threatened and, and perhaps, we, perhaps potentially be threats to others. And this is going to be a very nasty state of affairs, right? Hobbes called this nasty, brutish, and short, right? This kind of state of without a government, without a society. And in that sense, we are going to be willing to submit to a higher power, to an authority that is willing to, in some ways, rule over us and and have huge amounts of control over our lives and taxes and all sorts of laws and um, the ability to coerce and to put us in prison and to do all these things that we're ultimately going to be willing to submit right to that because we realize that in the absence of that, this is Hobbes, Hobbes would say, we would realize in the absence of that, that life would be awful and miserable. So that's that's another big fork in the road between Hobbes and Locke, right? For, for Hobbes, the creation of the state or government is a submission, right? Is a, is a, um, we are exiting a awful situation, right? And we are, we are fleeing um, what would be our conditions in the absence of government. Whereas Locke is saying like, you know, things aren't so bad, but we can make them better. Right? And those are just very, very different understandings. And I think if you if you look at some of the different ideas and, and discourses that surround politics even to this day, I think you can see that a lot of the premises that justify or support different political positions that are very common in discussions all over the world today um, are anchored in these two kind of major dispositions about politics as constraining the evil impulses or bad impulses or self-regarding impulses that people have versus politics as a means of taking the basic raw material of human beings that is predisposed to be amicable and peaceful and, and cooperative and trying to improve upon this and make things better, right? So in, in the Lockean kind of liberal view, we're getting into politics to take a good thing and make it better. And in the Hobbesian world, we're throwing ourselves and submitting ourselves to the state to take an awful situation and make it tolerable, right? And make it acceptable and, and not so awful, right? And that's just a, a much, much different understanding. So I think that the readings are certainly probably going to be a little challenging. Um, they're the original writings from hundreds of years ago. Uh, so I, did, I gave you, I think, fairly small passages. So just try to work your way through them. And if you have questions or, you know, a good way with these kinds of original texts um, is to highlight things. Um, so if there's a particular passage, so in the comments, if you want to discuss a specific passage that you think is interesting or you want to explain further, um, you can even cut and paste the passage into the comments um, that on the Google Sheets and we can kind of dig into that. So these are a good way, same with Locke, um, just you know, highlight and find things that you find interesting or difficult to understand. Um, hopefully also the notes, which are available on AIMS for week two, can be kind of somewhat of a guide. So yeah, but I really encourage you, these are important texts and they're not presented like Hobbes and Locke are not some ultimate authority and write about everything. Um, they're not being presented in that way, but these are massively influential works. And so whether we think Hobbes is right or wrong or Locke is right or wrong, or we think Hobbes 
and Locke are wrong. Um, and they do share some things, and you might want to look at ways that they're similar, despite some of their differences. I, I think they're important texts to grapple with, and I think even more importantly, they give us a nice basis going forward, these kinds of nice foundational anchors to build upon in terms of trying to understand what is politics, where is politics, how does our understanding of human nature and, and justice, right? And that's an, another interesting thing we're going to see emerge um, in a distinction between Hobbes and Locke, right? For Hobbes, in the absence of government, the notion of justice is irrelevant. There is no morality. That government and the entering into the social contract, which we're going to discuss in more detail in the class um, in this coming week, is a process whereby we actually create morality and, and notions of justice, that, that such things don't exist outside of living in a formal government or, or society, and that in the absence of that, people are free to do anything they like. And there is, again, there, it, it, there's no, it's not that things are right or wrong in this. There, there is no notion of right or wrong um, in the absence of government. And for Hobbes, he thinks this is a very perilous state for us to live in. And so we, hence, we are willing to give up a lot of our natural freedoms to enter into the concord um, or social contract that is um, the state. Of course, by contrast, Locke is going to find this to be unacceptable position and argue that based in this notion of natural law, which often has a kind of Christian um, root to it, uh, that human beings have, you know, that there are natural laws in terms of not taking someone's life or not taking someone's property that guide and govern our behavior and represent just and unjust actions, even in the absence of government. So that's another big question, right? Do our notions of justice only exist within a certain given political context, a certain creation, like as the state of a political system, a city or a state or an empire or what have you? Or as Locke puts it um, and sees it, are there kind of abstract or, or notions of justice that exist whether or not we are living in a specific political system or not that are in some ways innate parts of human life and, and understanding that guide and shape and would, you know, that in the absence of government, if someone stole your stuff, Locke is going to say, you would be able to say, no, that's unjust. And people would understand that. For Hobbes, he's going to, in, in, in without a government, if someone comes up and takes your stuff, in, in the Hobbes view, you have no claim. There, because there's nothing to claim. There's no justice in this world. There's no right or wrong. That person took your stuff. And Hobbes is going to say in that, and that's in, in, in the absence of government, it really is might will make right, right? That they took your stuff and either you can take it back or you just accept it. But you can't say, well, that's unfair. They took my stuff and appeal to some notion of justice. So as you can see, this raises a lot of very interesting and important questions that I'm really excited to continue to discuss and dig into in, in the class this week. So please be sure to put a comment or question. And as I mentioned, if there's a particular passage in one of the readings you wanted to discuss or dig into, we can also do that as well. And I look forward to seeing you in class next week. Have a wonderful weekend.